This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. You still have mechanisms through which you can convey that same empathy you would do in person that you would do virtually. And it is a much better option than trying to just have a conversation over the phone. Today, Tough Choice Healthcare Ethics Dilemmas are discussed by patients, their loved ones, and healthcare professionals. These discussions are about the care and treatment plan of the patient based on their values. Most often, these discussions and decisions have been held in person. However, as healthcare moves to virtual care, especially in our current COVID-19 environment, what would virtual ethics discussions or consultations look like? What would be important to pay attention to? Our guests today have offered such virtual ethics discussions on tough choice decisions with patients. Our guests are Christy Cole Horsberg, a lawyer and staff ethicist with the Cleveland Clinic Center for Bioethics, and Dr. Mawish Ahmad, a physician and transplant ethicist with the Cleveland Clinic Center for Bioethics. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Christy, how would you explain to our listeners what an ethics consult is? So usually we're called by the healthcare team often, um, though we're available to patients and families themselves. And usually we're getting a call when someone has a decision in front of them that they feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. Um so that there are two things that are really important to them, uh, whether it's two, three, or four things that are really important to them, and there is no good option moving forward, um, or they just don't know what the right thing to do is, if they're asking themselves what the right thing to do is. And usually when we are doing the consult, we are talking to all of the individuals that have an interest in the outcome of that particular situation. So I'll go back to the the case I mentioned earlier. Um, for me, that has continued to stick with me is we want to make sure that we're talking to the family and listening to their perspective as to why they think their loved one, um, if they could talk for themselves in that moment and they understood what was going on, um, why they would make a specific treatment decision. Um, we want to talk with the physicians, the nurses, the social worker, the care manager, um, all of those that have a role in that patient's care uh, to hear their perspective as to what the implications are of these decisions, um, what potential obstacles or barriers they see in terms of being able to follow a certain course of action. Um, and so when you're with us and doing these consultations, you're talking to a lot of people and really trying to understand where it is that they are coming from and thinking through this. Um, but in addition to that, making sure that you're instilling in them what the underlying ethical frameworks are for their decisions. So often when we're talking about end-of-life decisions, it's really thinking about what that patient would want if they could understand the situation in front of them or they were able to speak for themselves at that point in time. Um, but thinking in other cases as well, I recently had a case that came from the outpatient setting where the patient had been diagnosed with breast cancer, had recently had a mastectomy, 
And that mastectomy resulted or prompted um, a depressive episode. And the patient had a history of this in the past to the extent where it would require ECT. And the team was really struggling, and ECT being electroconvulsive therapy. And the team was really struggling with whether or not to provide adjunctive therapies, so therapies that would reduce the risk of having a relapse of the cancer in the future because of some of the some of those treatments had a high risk of depression as well. And given that this patient had a history of that and actually was experiencing some of it at that moment, it seemed like it would do more harm. Um, so again, in that situation, trying to talk with everybody that is involved to get their perspective and really give them a, a framework through which to think about the decision. Um, we're not the ones making the decisions. I think we're the ones supporting the decisions and trying to advise as to if we hear that X is the most important thing to them, then it sounds like option C might be the better way to go and giving the reasoning behind that as well. Um, But a lot of what we are doing is in an advisory, advisory role and really trying to make the situation or the decision maybe not so much an easier decision to make, but have the choice that might be the least bad option kind of rise up to the top and maybe become obvious at the end of the day. Mawish, what is the story that led to the idea of doing virtual consultations? As ethicists, we work with patients, we work with healthcare professionals, as Christy elaborated on, and also with the patient and their loved ones to help make decisions when the quote-unquote right answer is not fully clear. Um, In that kind of a setting, we usually go through and parse out what the values are inherent in the patient's own um, value system that make it important to highlight one ethically uh, relevant pathway to make a decision versus another. Um, Most of these cases are conversation-based. We have our moments where there is active management for for contentious patients or family meetings. Um, The work is never dull, just let's just put it that way. But most of our conversations and our um, involvement in the case is largely patient and family and uh, person-focused. So when you have a highly person-focused and value-based kind of consultation method, then uh, we as a group decided along the way that to to, in order to help leverage our existing strength as an academic uh, center for clinical bioethics, as well as our strength as a clinical ethics consultation service, we should start to leverage and seek ideas on how best to get in touch with patients who are, for example, on the outpatient side are not admitted for long-term complicated care, but might be best served by finding a mechanism where we could meet with them, not one-on-one necessarily, but either through the phone or through Skype or whatever medium we could think of. 
I think that's the direction that healthcare is going in general as well. Um, I mean, we have a distance health center because there's a big push to provide patients virtual care so that they can stay in the comfort of their home without necessarily trekking out to an urgent care center or coming into the hospital and having to wait in a waiting room for however much amount of time that they, for those things that we can do virtually, they can sit in their home um, where they're comfortable and receive quality care that way. So I think part of the movement too, and part of the story for us is just recognizing where healthcare in general is going and how ethics and ethics consultation fits within that as well. What is unique or different when the conversation via screen is about some of the more difficult healthcare choices that we make. So from my perspective, after having done quite a few of these, that was one worry at the back of my mind that it would, the lack of physical presence in the room sitting right next to the patient or the family member might detract in some way from the, uh, the personal connection aspect. However, it, actually is a pleasant surprise to see that um, once you make eye contact with the person through the camera on my desktop and I'm speaking to someone in Arizona or Florida, that sense of connection and that implicit trust that the other person is looking at you and is hearing what you are saying is is kind of uh, there already. So one of uh, our anticipated challenges was that we would not be able to make headway with difficult conversations. And within a clinical ethics consultation, every, uh, every discussion that we have has its nuances in terms of being sometimes difficult, not just for the um, conflict resolution aspect for the ethicist, but also for the patient or family, just by virtue of the fact that it all usually entails either end of life decision making or has um, intimate moments where you are talking about deep seated beliefs and values. Um, through my work with the virtual ethics consultation service, I have not found that to be a hindrance. Um, but it remains to be seen if the patients themselves would feel a lack, um, you know, f uh, between a clinical ethicist speaking to them within the room uh, versus one virtually. I worry a little bit internally every time I have or anticipate uh, broaching a difficult topic for the patient or the caregiver that is present with them. However, having gone through the um, virtual ethics consultation many times now, um, it, it, it is sometimes just a matter of putting the patient and uh, the person on the other side of the device at ease so that they are able to relate to you and understand where you are coming from. Um, and it is, of course, always helpful to be able to look another person in the eye, even through the digital connection of a webcam. Um, it certainly is highly, uh, it is more appropriate as compared to a phone call uh, where you do not have that one-on-one -on -one connection. Uh, but in circumstances and situations where digital presence is either necessary based on the disease process of the patient, based on their economic status, or based on just feasibility and ease for them 
to be able to meet with someone instantly rather than, as Christy said, trek out long distances, find parking, wait in waiting rooms, and then get to see an individual from the clinical team just makes it a matter of not not just expediency, but also innovation married with a new way to deliver care overall. Whether it's for ethics consultation services specifically or for health generally. Christy, what has been your experience? So Mawish has had a lot more experience than I have doing the virtual visits, but my own experiences with that I don't necessarily see a lot of difference in that being in the room versus the virtual. Um, I think the biggest difference is that potential, like sometimes if you're talking about something very difficult, you might give a reassuring pat on the shoulder um, to who it is that you are speaking with in that moment, able to hand them a tissue, those very small things of showing some empathy for the in the conversation and in that moment. Um, but in a virtual visit, you're just, you're doing it, you're still doing it. You're doing it in a different way. Um, I would say you need to be a little more conscious of the eye contact that becomes, I think, more important in the context of a virtual visit um, and comparing the virtual visit to a phone, which in my practice in, in the regional, in our regional hospitals, I occasionally can only speak with a family member or a patient or a provider via phone and I miss body language cues through that. And whether you're doing that face-to-face versus versus virtually, you're still able to see those body language cues about seeing what you're saying, how that is um, being heard by that individual and able to maybe reframe something if you visually see they either aren't understanding this or this isn't um, making the impact that I had hoped it would make. And you're able to tweak in that way. So overall, I would say in the face-to-face versus virtual you still have mechanisms through which you can convey that same empathy you would do in person that you would do virtually. And it is a much better option than trying to just have a conversation over the phone. What kinds of patients might be ideal for this type of consultation? And what do you pay attention to that might be different? Um, So, Kevin, for our clinical ethics consultation and especially kind of triaging, for lack of a better word, what would be the ideal patient for an ethics consultation service held virtually? We tend to look at whether they are their openness to digital technologies, whether they have an email address that they are comfortable the healthcare system reaching them out to. We do give them a call for every potential virtual ethics consultation and make sure that they are comfortable. And and our admin um, religiously goes through and helps them kind of understand what the experience would be like. She helps them feel comfortable with the fact that they would just log on as they would on their own email and then put in a password and a username in order to open the app. And from then on, um, they are essentially in our quote-unquote virtual um, waiting room on the app. From that point onwards, the consultant from the ethics service uh, only has to log in 
see them, review their chart to make sure that any details of the case are not missed, and then just connect with them as you would through any FaceTime or Skype session. Um, some of our patients are understandably worried about technology or, or about the ideal uh, positioning or the location from where they should uh, conduct a virtual consultation appointment. Uh, our digital health services have been excellent in helping streamline and give directions. And so each identified potential patient that would engage through a virtual ethics consultation is then emailed a set of directions in order to help simplify the process and sign in for them. And this way they know to look for uh, areas within their home, for example, that have the best broadband network that are able to be quiet, that would offer them privacy, um, and they would be able to have a comfortable seated conversation with the ethicist. Um, this gives us the flexibility to broach the topic with them, uh, pr- kind of offer this innovative way to meet with an ethicist and see where they land. Certainly, if we encounter patients who are opposed to doing a virtual ethics consultation, I would abide by those wishes and would offer a traditional come in and see me in person uh, visit so that they are comfortable with whatever path for care that we approach. Uh, but as I've said before, that was one of the um, challenges that I had at the back of my mind that we were going to consistently run into, which has actually surprisingly and pleasantly not been the case for our patients. So we've had, uh, I have talked to people as young as 19, and I have talked to some uh, very technologically savvy, even though it's not necessary for our patients to be technologically savvy, um, 60, 60 something year olds, so that they're across the spectrum, we have run the gamut from male to female um, in order to make sure that we have uh, the right person who is able to engage in a virtual uh, consultation or visit with us. As you think about how this could expand to address other healthcare needs, other healthcare ethics issues arising in the community rather than just in a hospital setting. What has been your thinking? I still think this is a huge need that has not been tapped yet. And I don't know if anyone within our field has figured out how you really integrate ethics services into that setting. Um, I know we've tried over the past couple of years, and we've certainly been met with a lot of enthusiasm of the availability of this service. But I think our field in general has been so embedded in the inpatient setting at this point that that's the workflow we know. We know how to integrate ourselves into a hospital setting. We don't necessarily or we haven't figured out how to integrate ourselves into an outpatient setting where they don't have things like daily rounds. They don't have things like case conferences all the time. Some, I think, some of our uh, outpatient services do, but not all of them, like our family health centers where they're general practitioners and they're seeing patients um, every, they've got 20 minutes per patient, 10 minutes of visit, 10 minutes of charting or, or something to that extent. And they might come upon an issue where we would be helpful and would add value to that patient's care, but they don't have that much time to really think about it and to actually pick up the phone and call us, unlike our inpatient colleagues. Um, so and we have a real opportunity to learn what their workflows look like and how we better integrate ourselves into those workflows. A huge challenge is that 
we're not necessarily going to be adding ethicists just to focus on the outpatient setting. Um, and that's really what this virtual visit platform helps us, utilizing that as a tool so that we can help the outpatient setting and be available for support. But in terms of it becoming second nature to give us a call like it is in the inpatient setting, there's a lot of work that we still need to do to understand how to do that. I will second uh, Christy's comment and say that during uh, last year when we were actively launching this initiative and were speaking uh, quite deliberately and extensively with our internal stakeholders as well as uh, teams within our healthcare system that we thought would benefit from this kind of virtual ethics consultation platform and services, we have had to uh, reach out to individuals whom we think might benefit, uh, number one, and two, to proactively do marketing um, in such a way that it makes sense for them to kind of start to think about which would be the situations, which would be the patient scenarios that would be helpful to integrate with this availability and be able to have their patients and colleagues meet with us even virtually, uh, whether they are at a, a satellite family healthcare center or at a clinic setting, whether they're a pediatrician who has 20 patients in their uh, workflow. And so there, there are... Um, some uptake uh, work, as Christy mentioned, that we continuously need to do as we as we move forward with integrating a virtually held ethics consultation service um, and help practically integrate it into the workflow for our busy clinician colleagues. Any stories that demonstrate if it really works or if it really helps? Perhaps the story where you became sold on virtual consultation. So I think my story doesn't necessarily demonstrate how it helps, but how it could have helped. Um, I think this goes back a little bit to what I was saying about having somebody pick up the phone and ask for the help in that outpatient setting. I was talking with a colleague of mine who's actually on one of our ethics committees um, who is primarily an outpatient provider. And she was conveying a situation that was causing her a lot of distress where she was really trying to help this patient who had an extreme fear of needles, um, but needed a valve replacement. And nobody would take the blood work because the patient communicated that you have to completely knock me out. If I have any awareness that there's a needle in my arm, I will lash out. And so our healthcare workers were understandably concerned about their own safety in that context. And this physician tirelessly was trying to facilitate this blood work for the patient. Um, and I really think it would have been it would have been very beneficial to reach out because as I was speaking with her, I'd asked, had anyone talked with the patient um, about potentially restraining him during this and during the blood work, uh, if the patient would be comfortable with that, so to protect the patient as well as to protect our healthcare workers. Um, and I could see the light go off in her mind and saying, I really wish I would have talked to you in that moment so you could also talk to the patient about brainstorming what would be appropriate um, within certain ethical frameworks without with to get the patient what they, they wanted and what the patient needed. Um, 
so, and that's one of the the stories or one of the conversations I've had that I think this could be very valuable and have a large impact in those moments when people are struggling with what the right thing is to do for somebody. Um, and just having that additional resource, sometimes we talk about ourselves as a third party or a neutral party to have fresh eyes on that kind of situation coming from the perspective of what would be an ethically supportable path forward to meet whatever the goal, what the goal is, um, could could change the course of a patient's treatment. I think one um, specific encounter, at least for me, kind of stands out. One also where the patient that I was speaking to was more distressed or anxious, however you want to say it, um, as regards to the conversation we were having if I recall correctly, this was a potential donor who was um, thinking about a donation. I forget whom they were specifically donating to. But my uh, initial worry about what if I have a patient in front of me that I'm not able to physically comfort or to help extend a tissue to and they start crying. And um, they were um, physically... Um, they were evidently very emotional and did start crying. And we were able to say, and I was able to say, let's just stop here for a second. Um, let me take a moment and regroup with you. I will just chat on because I tend to become uncomfortable in such situations. And I can't really give you a tissue and help offer a shoulder to cry on because I'm not in the room with you. But why don't we just take a moment of silence and let's see if that helps you kind of regroup and we can come back to this. And it was just a matter of maintaining eye contact with that individual that helped them kind of assimilate that I was coming from a place of non-judgment. I would wait for as long as they needed and was there to offer emotional support and kind of regroup and reframe the conversation so that it would be less distressing for them. Um, that they were actually able to complete the interview, were highly appreciative of the fact that I was able to have that conversation with them and were also excited to be able to do it from their home. Um, so that, at least to me, has been one of the positives of this, that there are certain um, situations that you can tackle, even if they are difficult conversations that you want to handle uh, through a virtual consultation. Now, if you have a highly charged family meeting or an eight-person encounter that you are envisioning, I would suspect that that not, might not fall into the ideal situation that you would want to start with a virtual encounter. And perhaps that setting is best suited to a one-on-one -on -one ethics visit or, a one, or in an in-person um, ethics consultation model. But I think this... Uh, the platform and the modality to be able to do this virtually has a lot of potential. It's just a matter of finding uh, the sweet spot between where our um, <clears throat> existing society and our community of ethicists is comfortable integrating this into their workflow and making sure that they and their teams are comfortable with offering this as a possibility for clinical colleagues to, uh, to gain from. Well, given your experience, what is now your elevator pitch for virtual consultation? Flexibility. We can see the patient as quickly as tomorrow morning. 
at a time that is convenient for them. Say virtual ethics consultation gives you an additional layer of support to try and unstick what might seem like an impossible scenario without the patient needing to leave their home. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.